May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. So I wasn't here last week, and uh, I was on vacation, and y'all know me well enough to know by now that I do weird things on vacation, right? Like last time I came back from vacation, and I was uh, talking about the goats I met on top of a mountain that I fed Nutter Butters to, or like I come back with stories of like the weird roadside attractions and all of that. You, like, maybe I should just like go to the beach or something next time. <laughs> Uh, but no, this past vacation, I helped people climb a mountain 17 times on purpose. So there's, there's this event. It's a, it's a thing. Someone at 8.30 knew about this, so if one of y'all knows about it, I'll be, I'll be shocked and impressed. It's called Eversting 29029. It's like a real put-on event. Think like Iron Man, whatever. They do them at ski resorts around the country. And the concept is you climb up the mountain, and ride the gondola down enough times to equal the height of Everest. So Everest is 29,029 feet, right? And so this mountain in Stratton, Virginia, was about 1,800 feet high, um, or the elevation gain was. And so you climb it up 17 times. So you go up 17 times, ride down. You have 36 hours to do this. Sounds fun, right? (laughs) Here's the trick. Today would have been great weather compared to last weekend. Uh, Last weekend, it started raining after a couple hours in, and it didn't stop. So these folks who climbed were soaked. There was lots of change of socks. There was lots of whatever. What I love about this, right, is this is from their website. It says, there are no winners at 29029. No podium, no age groups, no gender, no groups, no race categories. You versus you. Your only goal is to ascend the mountain more times than you thought possible. There are no winners. And so, like you think about it, the people I saw, right, there were people who hold world records for the fastest to climb all seven summits that person was climbing. They're obviously going to nail this, right? There was Olympic swimmers, and there were people recovering from heart surgery. There were people who run ultra marathons, and there were people who had only ever done a 5K. They were all there on this mountain trying to do what they could do. There are no winners. I'd argue that there are winners. They just redefine what winning looks like. And so I'm there. I didn't climb. Please note, I didn't say I I climbed because I'm smart. But I stood there in the rain supporting folks, handing them peanut butter sandwiches, filling up water, and ringing a cowbell. Notice I let the kids leave before this, because that could get wildly out of hand. But this became key. This is ridiculous and knuckleheaded, right? And cowbells are loud and obnoxious. I'm not going to ring it because Chuck will get mad because it'll spike the volume. See, look, I got a thumbs up. But for folks who were climbing, when they could hear the cowbell, it meant they were close to the end. It meant they were close to the summit of whatever climb they were on. There were people there ringing the cowbell. We'll get back to that in a minute. Because we actually have to talk about the gospel. I just can't talk about vacation the whole time. 
So today, we pick up in Matthew. We've been working our way through. And Jesus, right, we jump to a portion in Matthew that's the last days. We find ourselves right in the middle between the triumphal entry and the crucifixion. This is the heart of the passion. And so this lawyer comes up to Jesus, as lawyers are wont to do, and he asked him a question to trick him. He's like going to get him on cross-examination. He says, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus, who's a teacher of the law, he knows immediately, he answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Easy. That's the answer they were expecting. Because that's the Shema. That's the prayer inscribed on the heart of every Jewish person. They pray it in the morning, they pray it at night, they write it on their doorpost, they write it in their soul. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's easy. Jesus says that's the first one. The second one, just like it. No difference between the two. And here's the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's easy. I like my neighbors. They're nice people. Then the story goes on, and it seems weird. Our gospel today has this wonderful story, easy to preach on, love God, love your neighbor. But then it goes on, and there's this second bit where Jesus turns around and asks the lawyer, asks the people, who's the Messiah? What does this whole operation look like? And they say, the son of David. That's not just like a nickname. That's not just like something that they would say. When they said that, they meant something, and Jesus knew what they meant, because they said son of David, and Jesus said, you're right. That's what you've been expecting. And then Jesus goes on to quote Psalm 110 in our gospel. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 goes on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. Jesus said, you're right. The son of David is the Messiah. But what you're looking for is someone who's going to shatter heads. And what I'm telling you is that you need to be looking for someone who loves their neighbor. What does love look like? For the Jewish people, love looked like winning. Love looked like a Messiah who came in, wrecked shop, rode in on a stallion, overthrew the government, put his buddies in power, and shattered heads. What does love look like? The answer Jesus gives to what is the greatest commandment, he's pulling from Scripture. Deuteronomy is the Shema, love the Lord your God. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor. We read from it today. I joke loving my neighbor is easy because I like my neighbors. But what did Jesus say when someone else in another encounter 
said, who's my neighbor? He wasn't talking about the nice guy next door that helps you with your yard. He wasn't talking about the people we like. What does love look like? Love does not look like winning. You've heard the phrase, we even say it in the Episcopal Church, love wins. That sounds real cute. Love doesn't have a category of winning. Paul, in another letter, gives us some categories of love. What is love? Love is patient, kind, doesn't boast, isn't arrogant. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not keep score. Love does not win. Love loves. Period. So what does love look like? What does love look like when you're a Jewish leader with a Samaritan? What does love look like between Israel and Hamas? What does love look like between families in Maine? What does love look like between a school board member and a school librarian? What does love look like between me and an Astros fan? I had to let the air out of the room a little bit. <laughs> what does love look like? We'll go here. So love actually looks like a dad taking his knuckle-headed kids to a World Series parade after the Astros won the World Series. Hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life. <laughs> what does love look like? Sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes love also looks like this. The next slide. What does love look like? That's Daryl Davis. You may know him from his music. He's a pianist who toured with Chuck Berry. He is rock and roll musician, famous. That's what he does for work. What he does for fun, what he does is his calling, is he befriends Klansmen. He finds leaders of the KKK, gives them a call, says, we need to talk. His mantra, the thing he says is, how can you hate me when you don't know me? What does love look like? So this is a story. Daryl was at our clergy conference I was at this past week, and so he stood up in front of um, about 300 mostly white clergy and shared his story. He held up Klan robes, which is a very visceral experience, if you can imagine. He shared this story. Y'all remember in Charlottesville, the Unite the Right rally several years ago, right? Whole deal. There's this, this top left picture. This, whole, this tells a story. It's Richard Preston. He was the Grand Wizard of the KKK in Virginia. 
And so at the Unite the Right rally, there were confrontations between people. In one, there was a group of Klansmen and an African-American guy. And this African-American guy, he somehow got an improvised flamethrower, essentially, and that's the flame you see. And so he was doing that. So Richard Preston saw this, took exception to this. He was armed, pulled out his gun, shot at the guy's feet, and then walked away. The cops didn't do anything, you know. Is a whole deal. Daryl Davis sees this. His response is to find Richard's phone number and give him a call and say, we need to talk. What does love look like? So it took some, I can only imagine this phone call. Daryl's like, uh, hello, yes, I'm a black man and I would like to come talk to you. So he said, yeah, Richard said, yeah, to his credit. He invited Daryl to come to his house. And so Daryl drove by himself, unarmed, went to this home where Richard was there. And he's the Grand Wizard, so he has his clan bodyguards who were also there, who were armed. And they have a conversation. Not so much a conversation as Daryl asked questions and Daryl listened. He wanted to know where Richard's coming from. Remember his whole deal? How can you hate me when you don't know me? So Daryl wanted to know Richard. He also played piano for him. They started to build connection over the things they shared in common. Two hours were up, and they had things to do, and so they parted ways, but Daryl knew the conversation wasn't over. And so he invited Richard to go with him to the Smithsonian uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. And so you'll see... Uh, Maybe you can't see, but Richard goes there with his fiance. He's wearing a um, Confederate battle flag um, durag, scar, uh, head piece. Bandana. Bandana, that's the word. Thank you. <laughs> He's wearing that into this museum. You can only imagine the looks that he got. And look at that first picture. That's early on in the, in the visit, as Daryl says, right? Richard's being confronted with some things. Richard's wrestling with some things. Daryl, I can only imagine what's going through his mind. They go through this whole deal. takes a couple hours. They get through the museum. They go see Chuck Berry's convertible, right? Because Richard's a big fan. They want to connect over things. By the end of this visit, look what Richard did when his fiance took their picture. Put his arm around him and smiled. What does love look like? This is a great story if it ended there. But a little while later, Richard and his fiancée want to get married. His fiancée's dad isn't too healthy. And so who walks this leader of the clan and his clan bride down the aisle? What does love look like? Maybe you can see it. What's in that window above them? Confederate battle flag. What does love look like? When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about the people next door. He's not talking about the people we like. He's talking about loving the people that want to kill us. 
He's talking about loving the people who wish we didn't exist. He's talking about loving the people we can't stand. What does love look like? This isn't easy, and I know that. And most of us, probably all of us here, aren't going to be called to do this. But maybe we're called to reach out to that person we're thinking about right now. Maybe we're called to reconcile with that person that's coming to mind right now. Maybe we're called to be that person we wished we had when we were at our lowest. Because we can all think of that person too. Those moments when we felt unlovable, those moments when we felt like we were beyond redemption, those moments that we felt that there's no one out there that cares about us. Someone was there ringing that cowbell for us. Someone was there saying, I love you more than the worst thing you've ever done. I love you more than maybe you love yourself. I love you. Period. Love loves. And if it's not another person, I can name those people in my life. Maybe you, like me, it's your dad. Maybe you, like me, it's other people who have been there when you felt unlovable. But if, even if that person doesn't exist in your life, remember where I said this story with Jesus takes place, right? After the triumphal entry, before the crucifixion. I talk in here a lot about Jesus' command for us to love our neighbor. And maybe I just do that with the understanding that we all kind of know where that comes from. But I've been convicted. Like, I actually, Jesus loves you people. Jesus loves you. Maybe when no one else does. Maybe when the world hates you like it hates Richard Preston. Jesus loves you. Period. And I don't say that enough. So if you hear nothing else from me ever in my whole time here, hear that today. Jesus loves you. Amen. Amen.